Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Psalm chapter 6. Psalm chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, If you're joining us maybe for the first time, we have been in a series through the Psalms, uh, and we will be for the rest of the summer. And uh, so we are, we are now six weeks in. We're on Psalm 6. So Psalm chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. I remember very well the worst spanking that I ever received in my life. Um, and I'm not going to tell you what I did, okay? But I'll tell you it was on that side of really bad, but still on this side of juvenile detention center, okay? So somewhere in that gap, uh, I did something really bad. And as foolish as I was at the time, I was 10 years old at the time, and I was at my friend's house, which was down at the end of the street, and my dad happened to be coming home from work at exactly the moment where I was doing this bad thing. And he didn't take too kindly to what I did, and so he pulls up next to my friend's house, and he says, what were you doing? And I tried to give sort of a half-hearted answer that would just kind of send him on his way, and he said, get on your bike and go home. I'm thinking he's going to drive home, I'm going to get on my bike and follow him home. That's not what happened. I got on my bike, and he trailed me the entire way. If I had slowed down even a a skosh, he would have flattened me like a pancake on the road and just killed his only son. Uh, but when I got into the house, uh, well, I'll just say he lit into me like a windmill in a tornado. And I thought it would never end. I was uh, black and blue after that and afraid to sit down uh, for quite some time. And at first, when I was first received the discipline... I was really mad. I was incredibly mad. I remember going back to my room and slamming the door and just really, really frustrated, tears coming down my face. I was so mad. And then after I got over being mad, I felt really sorry for myself. I started thinking, I didn't deserve that. Okay, it was bad, but it's not like I was going to prison for it. Come on. And then after I got over feeling sorry for myself, I felt remorse for my sin and what I had done. was forced to apologize. Again, I'm not going to tell you what it was, but I felt sorry for my sin. And it wasn't until years later that I actually felt grateful. Because in some small way, or maybe some big way, the Lord, through my dad, conveyed to me the seriousness of the sin in front of me. And potentially stop me from doing something in the future that I would really regret. But it wasn't until years later that I was actually grateful for it. In our passage this morning in Psalm 6, King David is receiving discipline from the Lord. He's being disciplined by the Lord for something. I'm going to read Psalm 6 now, the very beginning. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith. A psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol... Who will give you praise? 
I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Let's pray over this word. Heavenly Father, we pray that the word that we read this morning, that it would be fruitful in our lives, that you would use all that we're about to talk about to bear much fruit, that as we think about your discipline coming on this king, that we would be able to apply it to our own lives and see what your discipline does for your children. We can only do that by means of your Holy Spirit, so I pray that you would open our hearts, that we may receive and obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have you ever been disciplined by the Lord? Have you ever been in a spot, in a situation where you're in just deep anguish? Talking about those moments where you feel like all of the things that are surrounding your life are coming to a crashing halt and they'll never end. It just seems to go on and on and on. Seems like the whole world is caving in all at once. It seems like nothing you ever do turns out right. All of it seems to crumble right in front of your very eyes. And the thought crosses your mind at some point. Is the Lord mad at me? Is, is that what's going on? Is he, is he out to get me? Does he hate me? Have you ever been sick? And I mean really physically ill. To the point where you thought to yourself, this is how it all ends. This is how the Lord is going to kill me right here over this toilet. I wonder if you've ever thought during those moments of sickness, is this the Lord punishing me? Maybe with this sickness? Maybe he's brought this about because of something I've done? Lord, do you hear me? Please heal my body. In Psalm 6, David is clearly feeling the belt of divine discipline. He even tells us in verse 1 that this is the Lord's anger that he is feeling. He senses it already from the outset of the psalm that the Lord is angry with him. And he's asking the Lord to not rebuke him in his anger. But as we think about this psalm, we want to feel what David is feeling. We want to connect with him in the best way that we possibly can. And so, right there in verses 6 and 7, look there with me. He says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. The discipline of the Lord and the enemies that are surrounding David have brought him to a bone-tired weariness. Where he feels like he can just not function anymore. He's not sleeping He's crying all night. And we're not told in this psalm what the sin is that David is being punished for. And we we actually, in this psalm, don't even see him repent at all. 
He's merely praying for relief from God. So we don't see the sin mentioned. We don't see even the, 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 him repenting in any way, saying, I'm sorry, or anything like that. So some think that David has committed a sin and he's being punished with the workers of evil that you see in verse 8 that are surrounding him, that are brought on as a result of the sin. Some think that he's ill because of verse 2, he asks for healing from the Lord, but regardless of what brought it about, and regardless of, of how the Lord is bringing him under discipline, he's being put under divine discipline. And so this psalm is a psalm of grief and a psalm of penitence because the author David is undergoing divine discipline. But also let's remember that this is a psalm. And according to the heading, at the very beginning, it's written by, as far as we know, it's written by David. And, and that heading at the beginning, as far as we know, is written by David. And it's directed to the choir master, which tells us something very important about this psalm, that it's intended to be sung in the middle of congregations. That it's meant to be sung by everyone. And so what that means is two very important things. First, that the content is going to be general enough that we can all benefit. So in some way, we're all going to be able to relate to what, go what is going on in David's life. It's general but second, it's meant to be an instruction for you and I when we undergo discipline from the Lord. It's meant to be something that we emulate following David. If you'll think back on the hymns that you've probably learned or the songs that you've sung in church as a kid or maybe even as an adult, when you're washing dishes, maybe you're going through a particularly rough time, who doesn't recall to their mind it is well as you're going through your regular day or... Amazing Grace comes to mind. In a similar way, these songs are written for, for the, the, the congregation to recall in the midst of, in this case, divine discipline. So not only are they general enough that we can relate, but they're also given to us as a means of instruction that we might recall to mind and then repeat those actions in the midst of discipline. So in, this, in each of the sections of this psalm, David is going to respond in a way that is instructional for the reader. So as we're going through this, it's an instruction for us. In other words, we should also do some of these things as we undergo divine discipline. Or at least we should think about them. So four things here we're going to see. The first is uh, to appeal to the Lord's mercy for He's gracious. To appeal to the Lord's mercy for He's gracious. Look at verse 1. To three, O oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O oh Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O oh Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O oh Lord, how long? Again, we're not told exactly uh, what has brought on this punishment, but the first line tells us that for whatever reason, David senses that this is clearly a discipline coming straight from the Lord to him. And he has nothing left but to appeal to the Lord for mercy. To appeal to the Lord for grace. And the fact that there is no sin mentioned has led some to believe, like I said, that he's physically sick. And as, as, as you're often to do whenever you're really sick, you think that this might be the Lord's way of killing you. Well, in verse 2, in the second half of verse 2, David asks the Lord specifically there to heal him. But the point is that the foes that we've seen in the previous psalm are not here. 
Most of the previous Psalms, up into Psalm 6, David is concerned with these enemies that are surrounding him, and he's praying that the Lord would take care of those enemies. But in this Psalm, there's a clear break. They're mentioned briefly at the end of the Psalm, but they're not the focus of this Psalm. In fact, God is the focus of this Psalm. God is, as it turns out in Psalm 6, both the problem and the solution for David. God is the one enacting all of this. God plays both the problem and the solution. So there is a sense from David that the Lord is angry with him, and so the only thing that he can do do is appeal to his mercy. This is certainly a familiar approach for David to take. The Bible, as we find out as we read through the Old Testament, is very honest about the sins of the so-called noble characters of the Old Testament, and the new for that matter. They're very honest, tell you bluntly what happened in their lives. And so we saw this too with David on a number of occasions where he incurred the wrath of God. And one is in 2 Samuel 24, where David took it upon himself to count his people. A big no-no, all right, for the king to do. Those are God's people, they're not yours. And so he took it upon himself to go counting the people. And the Lord's wrath was kindled against David, and David felt it. It says David's heart in, in 2 Samuel 24, verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done foolishly. And so the Lord made David an offer through the prophet Gad. He sent Gad to him and he made him a deal. And he says this in verse 12, three things I offer to you. Choose one of them that I'll do it to you. Verse 13 says, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? That's one option. Will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? That's option number two. Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. That's Gad speaking on behalf of God. So what is David going to do? Choose what is behind door number one, which is a goat tied to a tire. (laughs) Choose what's behind door number two, which is a doorknob. (laughs) Or choose what's behind door number three, which is a pit of despair. (laughs) Which would you pick? David says in verse 14, I'm in great distress. Let's fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of men. So David's response is, I'm not totally going to choose. I'm going to say, I don't want to fall into the hands of men. Don't pick that door, but I'll let the Lord decide what he does to us. Why? Because he's merciful. But men are not merciful. Men are wrathful. If I fall into their hands, they might kill me. If I fall into the hands of the Lord, I like my odds because the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so I would rather fall into his hands. He would rather have fallen into the hands of the Lord because of his mercy than to the hands of men. So it seems evident in our text that when it's what David is driving at here in Psalm 6. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. I want to fall into your hands because you're merciful, because of your love to me. 
Now, but potentially you might be saying, well, how do I know whether the anguish that I'm in the midst of is a result of the Lord's discipline or just a result of the way life is sometimes? Am I guilty of something that the Lord is trying to correct in me? Or is this just part of the way things go? You get sick. People die around you. Things happen in the natural course of events. And I think this is a question that we all wrestle with at some time. Is the Lord trying to tell me something here? Or is this just the natural course of events? And one thing we need to be clear about is what the discipline of the Lord actually is in the life of the believer. The word David uses here in verse 1 when he says, nor discipline me in your wrath, it has the sense of instruction that's being given to you. So in, in some ways, we're being, it's, it's meant to teach. And so what, in some ways, the discipline that the Lord gives to us is in every circumstance in life that the believer goes through. We're taught in some way in every circumstance. So if it's true that He's conforming me into the image of His Son, and that He works all things together toward an end of good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose, then I should expect that in some way, every aspect of my life, everything that I go through, would be in some way the Lord imparting some measure of discipline to me. Because all of it is a means of conforming me into the image of Christ and refining me and shaping me, similar to how a teacher would instill a kind of discipline in her pupil. So first, it would help us to see that in all circumstances, everything that we go through is some measure of discipline that the Lord's giving to us. But then there's the kind of discipline probably that you and I think of when we think of the word discipline that's much more stern, that's much more corrective, and let's be honest, actually hurts a lot worse. <laughs> this would be the kind that the Corinthians are going under in 1 Corinthians where they've taken the Lord's Supper improperly and Paul tells them, many of you are sick and some of you have died because of your sin against the Lord. He's correcting you and some, he stopped you from going on to sin until it becomes so grievous. It's meant to bring you back to repentance. Now, how do I know if the situation I'm in is a product of that kind of discipline? Where he's coming in and he's being corrective. How do I know if that applies to my situation? Well, the answer actually is far simpler than it first might appear. You have to answer a question, does sin that you've committed come to mind in the midst of this discipline? Is there a sin that is coming to mind? If it is, confess it. Sounds pretty simple enough, right? If a sin comes to mind, confess it. Now, whether the sin that you committed is the cause of the discipline or not, we may never know and we may never find out. But the point is that this measure of discipline that the Lord has brought to you has brought that sin to mind so that you would confess it. So that it would no longer hinder your relationship 
with the Lord. God has used this circumstance to bring that sin to the surface of your mind that you might confess it as yet more evidence that you need Jesus instead of your own power. Now, if that sin was the reason for the discipline or not, you may never know. But what we can trust is what David demonstrates here. That in our confession, the Lord is gracious. The Lord is merciful. First John even tells us if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the point is that whatever the reason this discipline has come into my life, it has brought forth sin. And so I can confess it and trust in the Lord's mercy. And what we can believe is that you are His child. That He's your Father. That He loves you and He's gracious to you. So when we appeal to the Lord's mercy for forgiveness, we trust that He is gracious and will respond. Second, ask Him for deliverance for only He can save. Ask Him for deliverance for only He can save. Look at verse 4. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of Your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of You. In Sheol who will give You praise? David makes no qualms about what he wants. He wants to be spared of the misery. He wants to be saved from the pit of despair. But it's important to understand why David wants to be saved. Do you see that in the text? Why does David want to be saved? He says he wants to be saved for the sake of God's steadfast love and for the sake of worshiping the Lord. David is, is recognizing something in these two little verses that I fear the modern church is forgetting altogether. That our lives are lived for His glory, not our own. Our lives are lived for worship of God, not the glorification of self. We can see this in everything in our culture currently across the entire church all over America. We can see this when we're even looking at our own understanding of a church and what it is. All the way to more recently how we've responded to the coronavirus and what we're seeing going on around the, the culture at large. It's amazing how many people will tell their pastor. I've seen this both on staff at churches. I've seen this in the pew at churches as a member, how many people as they leave their church will tell their pastor and staff that the reason that they're leaving is because they don't like this or that, you know, it just really doesn't appeal to me. As if the church or the pastor for that matter should be primarily concerned about what you like. The crushing reality in the church that needs to be rediscovered and we really need to think about and talk about, we are not worshiping you. You're not the center of the room. None of us are. God is. Amen. So we should really ask the question, what does he think about it? Does he like it? Is he honored by it? Everyone has an opinion on how we should handle the coronavirus. For some, you'll hear people talk about churches are opening too fast. 
The virus is still out there, they would say. It's still out there, so you're just opening yourself up to it. In fact, we see this too as people come to church and they go home and then typically Monday or Tuesday you watch, you start scouring the news and you'll see the headlines at the top. Church meets 18 more cases or whatever, right? Proof, it's still out there. You're opening too fast. For others, we're not opening fast enough. This is overblown, don't you know? Still to others, should have never been closed. The flu is far worse. Then there's the extroverts. Gotta love the extroverts. <laughs> We've been gone to, from church for too long. I'm about to go crazy being cooped up in this house with all these kids. You gotta get me out here. I miss our church family. Let's open. Most of our desires, you'll notice if you listen, it's mostly about our own needs. Frequently what comes to the top is the reasoning for us making one decision or the other is driven by our own preferences or our own desires. I certainly have my opinions about it. And if asked, I might be inclined to tell you. But as I'm confronted with others who have, especially people in our church, who have people in their households with high health risks or immune deficient, it should cause me, it frequently doesn't, but it should cause me to check my own opinion lest I step on them and crush them. All that is to say that far too often our own needs and desires and opinions are at the forefront of our minds and often govern our decisions. Yet here David is in the midst of untold suffering, so much that he's up at all hours of the night weeping. But his appeal is to the Lord. He doesn't appeal to his own needs as a reason for relief. He appeals to the Lord's glory. And on two grounds. First, for the sake of your steadfast love. In other words, God has declared to the world that he loves me. Remember we saw back in Psalm 2 that David was the one that God set on his holy hill. That God is going to govern the world through David primarily. And then from Psalm 3 on, David is on the run from enemies. And now he's under divine discipline. And David is saying, Lord, you have declared your steadfast love to me, but if you kill me, what will people think about your name? Do it for the sake of your steadfast love. Don't violate your very own character. The second reason he mentions is because in death, there is no remembrance of you. Now, don't make too big of a deal about that. Um, this idea, he's basically saying, the worship of you would cease from my mouth if you were to kill me. I would no longer be able to sing praises to your name. I would no longer be able to worship you if you killed me. So resist the urge to make this about the afterlife and build all your doctrine on what life is like after death based on this verse. David will allude to later experiences of life after death in the Psalms and certainly the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament will as well. 
David isn't making a statement here as if to say, when we're dead, we're worm food. What he's doing, he's using an expression that, similar to one we've probably used from time to time, dead men tell no tells. You've probably said that or heard that phrase at some point. We don't mean that there's no life after death. What we mean is that there's no sound that escapes the mouth of a rotting corpse. And that's essentially what David is saying here. David's, as far as, David's, as, far as David means, that he's appealing to the public, um, the public and earthly worship of the Lord. And he basically is saying, if you kill me, I cannot sing your praise. So for the sake of your own steadfast love, for the sake of your own character, please do this. And if I die, who was going to sing you praise? But me. David knows he's appealing to the Lord to rescue him, but he recognizes that if God is to save, he's going to do it on the basis of his own name, not on the basis of David's name. Because ultimately it's about him and only he can save. The third thing to remember when undergoing divine discipline, grief. Grieve, for the Lord hears your weeping. Grieve, for the Lord hears your weeping. Look at verse 6 and 7. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. One thing about the Psalms that is unusually refreshing is how frequently there are tears. In fact, any level of suffering that we go through in our life, we should go back to the Psalms. Read them time and time again. They are a treasure trove and they're shockingly honest with how life actually feels. So David says he cries himself to sleep. And apparently there are people that are against him that see the agony that he's undergoing at night and all times of the day. They look at the agony that he's undergoing and they're mocking him. They're making fun of him and he sees them as foes that are gathered around. So he has the griefs that he's going through because of the Lord's discipline. And then he has foes that are surrounding him that are also scoffing him. Because even though you go undergo the Lord's discipline, the problems in life are still there. They didn't go away. You can probably empathize with what he's feeling. When in the midst of grief, all the other trials of life still seem to be situated in the exact same spot. They haven't left. The bills are still due. The friends are still mad at you, just as mad as they were before, maybe even worse. And it seems like when these kinds of griefs come, particularly discipline from the Lord, they all come at once. Everything comes together in one big pile. You ever notice that? Life seems to be going really smooth. Everything's pretty great. We're happy. You know, can't complain. And then all of a sudden, within one month, 18 different trials seem to be right there in your path. Could I handle just a little slow drip, maybe? Get them spread out just a little bit further? On top of feeling like your life is in shambles, you're feeling convicted of sin, otherwise feeling the discipline of the Lord, then you have crushing deadlines at work that are intensifying, your dog dies. Some friend has cancer. You've been locked in quarantine for three months. And when you finally do get a chance to make it out of the house, car battery's dead. You surely know this feeling. How come nothing goes right? When it rains, it pours. Remember David goes to his bed and remember what he told 
his enemies about their bed and a couple of psalms ago in Psalm 4, verse 4. He said, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. He told them to sit in their bed and think about what you've done. Sit in your bed and ponder in your own heart. Now he's the one thinking in his bed. And subsequently, he's the one brought to devastation, to mourn over his own sin. When was the last time your own sin brought you to grieve? When was the last time? When I ask that, I'm not only talking about the kinds of sins that we don't talk about at church, you know. That's a sermon for another day. But you know those big sins? Those cause us to grieve a lot. But I'm not just talking about those. I'm talking about the perceived little ones too. The ones that if somebody found out in church that that was a sin we had committed, maybe a little white lie or something like that, we'd be okay with them knowing that. Also another sermon for another day. When was the last time even those sins brought you to grieve? When was the last time that you thought about those sins? That sin is actually so grievous that God killed His Son to save me from it. Consider for a moment what a typical day looks like in the life of a 21st century American. Wake up. Check the time on your phone. Oh, look at that. I've got a message from the night before that I haven't read yet. Read text message. Well, I've got to respond. Respond to text message. Check social media. Read the news. Probably while still in bed. Maybe you've made it up by now. If not, after you read the news, check social media, you get up and you get ready and you're off to work or whatever it is you do for most of the day. You deal with the day's schedule, the coming and going, that I've got to get this done, I have to do this, I've got to put this till tomorrow, I've got to do that. Then you go home, where perhaps parenting, checking with your spouse, caring for them, doing things with the family, whatever. Perhaps you put the kids to bed, and then after the kids go to bed, you're tired and you've got to watch your stories, and... So you sit down with the spouse to watch the stories to unwind, maybe. Kiss your spouse goodnight. It's time for bed. Roll over, browse the phone until you get really tired and sleepy. Finally, you put it up and you go to bed. Now, I'm not spying on you if any of that was really true. I'm speaking from experience. Some of those may be different for you. You may not be married. You may not have kids, but you probably have some other things that you plug in there that might be a little bit different. Housework, working out, things like that. The point is that we're not often grieved by our own sin, and we may not even be able to identify our own sin. But then again, how much of our day is actually spent reflecting on what's in our own hearts? Probably not much. How often do we actually just sit in silence? How often is your surrounding environment just completely quiet? Not much. 
But I think this is a tragedy for all of us, myself included in this. This is, this is really a missed blessing for us that we don't reflect on the, what's in, the, even the sin that's in our own heart because you might be thinking, well, I don't want to do that. Who really does want to do that? Who really wants to think about how bad I am? Nobody. But remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this, Blessed are those who mourn. Do you remember why? For they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now having been in seasons of immense grief before, I know they are very difficult and it's not as though I'm wanting to go back to them. I don't really have much of a desire to go back to them. However, in the midst of those seasons of incredible trial, there is a remarkable closeness that you have with the Lord and a really strange comfort you have there that's often not realized in the happier seasons of life. And often you don't even realize until you're outside of the trial looking back on it and you go, you know, the Lord was really kind to me during that moment. And if you could go back and replay the movie of that trial, you might even say, like, look, what was it right there that kept me in the faith? Why was it that I wasn't driven to despair like some people are? Why wasn't it that I was driven maybe suicide or something really serious like that? What was it that kept me there? And you can point out, you know, it was the Lord right there that was protecting our family. It was the Lord that was shepherding us through this. A close family friend of ours recently went through a breast cancer. And, you know, I suppose all forms of breast cancer can, can kill you and are, are lethal, but the kind she had apparently is, is the worst kind you want to see come up on the report uh, in the scan. It's the most discouraging, I suppose. And so she called us, Andrea and I, to tell us. We were on speakerphone. We knew it wasn't good when she called to do that. And, and so she told us what was going on, and we, we broke down in tears. And uh, we prayed with her, and throughout the whole process, she kept us informed of what was happening throughout uh, the treatment. And, and just a few weeks ago, she, uh, she told us that she was officially in remission. And which was a huge blessing and we were just incredibly grateful for because we had had two people in the same church die of the exact version of breast cancer that she had um, in just the little bit prior to that, to her having it. So it was an incredible relief for us. But she said this, and I asked for her permission to share it because uh, it's, it's incredibly profound and only going through that kind of trial can you actually feel this. She said, Spiritually, I'm closer to God than I've ever been. If the cancer is gone, I don't want my dependence on the Lord to be gone, too. Last Thursday was another Thursday that I wasn't trapped in an infusion chair. I'm just so grateful for every day God gives, whether cancer or COVID. He's a beautiful navigator through it all. But please understand for all of us. This is where we're headed. Do you understand that? As a disciple of Christ, this is where you're headed. 
This is where those who grieve, those who mourn, those who go through trial, those who go undergo discipline of the Lord, this is where we're headed. Revelation 21, 3-4 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Wouldn't you hate? It's going to sound weird at first. Bear with me. Wouldn't you hate... To live a life with so little sorrow that could be brought about by just some self-reflection. Sorrow that's actually there in your heart that would actually bring you to mourn. Wouldn't it be bad to live life with so little sorrow because we're busy with this thing or with that thing that on that day there were no more tears to wipe away? That there was no comfort to be had in the Lord? That's the life of an unbeliever. Think about it. There is no grief that comes to his children that he does not see. There is no sadness that he does not feel. There is no pain that he will not rectify. And in the midst of our sorrow comes the bittersweet joy that our sadness is not lost on him. That he actually takes note of it. He remembers it. Grief is an important part of the process. But godly grief, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that, that kind that produces repentance, that's the kind of grief we want to have. Last. Trust in his deliverance for the Lord, accept your prayer. Trust in his deliverance for the Lord, accept your prayer. At the end of this psalm, David conveys his, his confidence in the Lord's rescue. He knows that the Lord is going to deliver him, for the Lord accepts my prayer, he says. And he reiterates what we've seen already, that the Lord has actually heard the sound of my weeping. And David is confident that his enemies who are also the Lord's enemies that we saw in Psalm 2, will be put to shame. When David is vindicated, his enemies are going to be put to shame. Because this underscores the fundamental truth about the Lord's discipline in the life of the believer. The Lord only disciplines his own. If you have undergone discipline from the Lord, the kind that produces repentance, you know that the Lord only disciplines his own. It's evidence that you're His. And so it's a cause for rejoicing. If it is true that you are being conformed into the image of Christ, then when He brings about repentance in your life, that's the way He does that. That's the way He conforms you into the image of Christ. And He only does that to His own. God's discipline of you is love, not hate. Though it often feels like hate. And in David's case, it feels like wrath. It feels like anger. But it's love. Prior to Jesus' death, 
He tells the disciples in John 12, 27, Now my soul is troubled. We've heard that. That's Psalm 6, 3. He's a veiled quote there to David. My soul is troubled. We know what happens in Psalm 6. David then pleads to the Lord to take it away. Don't rebuke me in your wrath, in your anger. Take it away. But pay attention to what Jesus says. My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. The true king, the divine king, the true son of David, who is sitting on the throne, Jesus, when he undergoes this kind of suffering, the soul-troubling things that David undergoes, does he ask for the Lord's deliverance? Remember, he tells Peter, I could. I could ask God and he would send a legion of angels. Do you think that I'm going to do that for this very purpose? I have come. If you are a disciple of Christ... God's wrath has already fallen on the shoulders of his own son on the cross. He has no more wrath stored up for you. There is no more wrath stored up for you. Jesus has already suffered and only in Christ are we no longer under the wrath of God. Divine discipline, divine correction as his child, yes, But if we're still sinful, if we still live in a fallen world where we still engage with sin, and we are His children, then He wouldn't love us if He didn't correct us. Discipline, yes. Wrath, no. It should cause us to consider a couple things. Perhaps you're in the midst of trial. It is good to consider whether your trial is a product of your own sin. Think about it for a second. Is the trial that you're undergoing, the suffering that you're feeling, the desperate feeling for the Lord to save me, is it a product of your own sin? Ask yourself, Is there any sin that I can think of? Lord, search me, David prays in Psalm 139. Search me and know my heart. He's asking for the Lord to bring it to the surface if there is sin in my life that is the cause of this suffering. Please bring it to my attention that I may confess it. But once you confess it, trust in the forgiveness that you have in Christ and move on. But do consider, is this a product of my own sin? Also consider in the midst of trial that this is a work of God's love for me. That as he's bringing me closer to him in prayer, the study of scripture, that's a means of his love and his grace, not his hate. He loves you, so it might cause you, as the apostles say in the New Testament, it might cause you to rejoice in suffering since it's further testimony that the Lord loves you as his child. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us the kind of patient endurance that we need to suffer well 
It's so difficult to suffer. Nobody likes it. Yet on the other side of suffering, what we see is many impurities were burned out in the process. So I pray that you would give us patient endurance. All of us. Whatever we're going through. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to continue to trust knowing that you're still good. There might be myriad of issues going on in this very room or even people that are watching at home. Maybe voice to others, maybe not voice, maybe just kept quiet. We know that in all those things, in your children, you're using them to conform us into the image of your son. But they are difficult to deal with. And we are tempted to disbelieve in your goodness. So I pray for everyone in this room that you would prove yet again your goodness to them. That they would feel it in a palpable way. Through your word, they would discover it. Bring us, not only to our knees, to our knees in prayer, and to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.